Hello and welcome to Long Range Sensors, the show where we reminisce about growing up with Star Trek and discuss an episode from the vast library of the Star Trek franchise. Later in today's episode of Long Range Sensors, we'll be picking up the Enterprise Season 2 episode, Dead Stop. This episode is brought to you with the generous support of Cosmic Liwa's Sonu Mini Packs and Elkhorn, our founding members over on Patreon. Thank you guys for all your support, you guys are just incredible. If you want to find out how you can support the show and get exclusive benefits too, you can visit patreon.com slash longrangesensors. My name is Alastair and I'm a British expat residing in the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. Joining me from across the Atlantic over in London, England, is someone who you may know as one half of the Console Shop podcast. A man who has never once been involved in a transporter accident. He is, of course, as he always has been, Mr. Trevor Whale. How are you doing, Trev? Yeah, good. Uh, transport accident. That's that's interesting, actually. I mean, does that mean one where you actually get killed or you just accidentally wee yourself mid-transport? <laughs> yeah, or, or you get split. That could be a form of a transport. I mean, I suppose this is one of the things. You've never been involved in a transporter accident. You've also never been involved in a successful transport either. So, To be honest, like, the history of transporting is pretty good right now. No one's died <laughs> at all, have they? So the record is there to kind of... <laughs> kind of be kept going isn't it a little bit um, <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it, might, it might take a knock when transporters are invented um the series we talk about kind of touches upon that actually funnily enough doesn't it mm. the whole series kind of makes jokes about this but uh yeah we won't go through that right now because i'm sure we'll touch upon it when we talk about the episode but uh you know you've not been in one either i take it no no we've, we've yet to get one of those heisenberg compensators to uh to help us out we do have that picture of us actually. I think you've shared it on the um, on our sort of our websites and social media sort of stuff. Where we were at Destination Star Trek London, there was like um, it wasn't really meant for people to sort of take photos, but there was like a, a really nice looking transporter pad with mm. the whole background and everything. And we just thought, let's just jump on it and take a picture because well, it kind of looks cool. It was an augmented reality thing as well, so it had like a little yeah, thing on right. the uh, the transporter pad, which I've edited out in the photo. Because uh, mm. it looked a bit cheap, um, but yeah. the idea was that you downloaded an app, you pointed it at the person who was on the transporter pad, and then it would have them beam away and then beam back. Yeah, that's really cool. And yeah. the funny thing is, as well, with the, like the ceiling. One thing that I think that's funny about the photo: the ceiling, it didn't have one, but but because of the the, the really cool looking scaffolding that this um, it was the Excel Center, wasn't it, in East London? For yeah. anybody that knows, like like London had really cool looking futuristic scaffolding. And it perfectly fit where the picture kind of got t- took. So it looks like there's a cool sci-fi ceiling, but it isn't. Mm. It's just the Excel Center's roof. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember as well that the uh, the augmented reality, like it sounds great, but it was very, very early days for that. Because this was what, 2012? Yeah, I mean, the only experience I had of it up until then would really have been like, I remember when I got my Nintendo 3DS on launch day in 2011. Um, you had the AR cards that came with it that you could place mm. on like a, a table and you um, put your three 3DS on and use the camera. And you have like Kirby and Mario jump out of these funny little AR cards. Um, and you can take a picture of your face um, and sort of overlay it onto a text. You could texture it onto like um, some kind of video game MacGuffin that then you could put into a game. 
But if you go back and look at that stuff now, it looks a bit a bit crap. I think the Vita as well, the PlayStation Vita Red AR cards as well. But they've kind of dropped that all that stuff like a dead stone now, haven't they? Really. Mm. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about today's topic then. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're going to be talking about Simon and Schuster's interactive CD-ROMs. People think this is like just two blokes uh, that have made like some homemade CD-ROMs, but no. <laughs> Simon who, who, and, and Schuster. Yeah, they're just these guys we know. Yeah, sounds like Jeeves and Worcester. <laughs> oh, Jeeves and Worcester, yeah. Comedy <laughs> Act made CD-ROMs, what are you talking about? Well, so, I mean, yeah, I guess for people that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, didn't have this stuff when they were growing up or whatever, who were, like, you know, Simon, Simon and Schuster? Well, they they were a big publisher, and they still are, and they they still have the Star Trek yeah. license, and they're still publishing books to this day. Um, oh, they still but, have it. All right. Yeah, they're still they're still doing them. Um, but they also had the Star Trek license to do some interactive CD-ROM stuff. They did some games. Uh, we're not going to be talking about the game specifically yes. uh, yeah. this episode because that's going to be a whole conversation on its own. Um, oh, but yeah. they did have a, a bunch of non-games, and they also had the DS9 license as well. So a lot yes. of the DS9 games were were all by them. Yeah, um, I mean, I rem- uh, funny enough, I I didn't really use these CD. I remember them coming out, and I remember them being out. Most of my experience with them, I mean, we're talking like sort of, I think for about 1994 onwards was when it really became a big thing. The first one I remember is probably the the, the next generation technical manual because I had mm. the book version of that. I've still got yeah. it to this day, and it's freaking awesome. But um, they made a CD-ROM of it. Um, but I never really got... I didn't have a PC um, in, in, in the sort of early mid-90s. I had friends that had them, so I was used to playing PC games. And obviously at school as well, they had sort of PCs. Some of them had CD-ROM drives at that time. Like We're getting into sort of late 486, early Pentium kind of era. So they were kind of powerful enough to play, you know, low-quality low videos. Well, they weren't low-quality to us then. But, um, yeah... Um, so I remember like seeing them like advertised. I think as well like Star Trek Monthly, uh, the UK magazine, which is still going to this day. Though it's kind of like, evolved into just being the main sort of Star Trek world, you know, worldwide magazine, which is kind of interesting. Again, we won't go into that because that'll be an episode pro- probably coming up um, about the magazine. But um, yeah, I remember they would do reviews of them in that. Um, but it's only really recently that. Um, I don't mean like really recently, probably over the last 10, 15 years when people have made ISOs of these files online available because um, they're kind of abandonware now. Mm. Um, especially the reference stuff. Like some of the games have kind of tried to read like good old games. I think maybe might have some. But yeah, um, it's only really in recent years that I've personally got, been able to go and use them and I'll, I'll probably be able to get into how later. But did you actually have them then personally and you actually used them at the time? I did. Yeah, I had I had some of them. So oh, cool. Um, I had the Star Trek Encyclopedia that I did not actually know was actually the second edition. They did it's the, multiple... was it the Omnipedia. Was it called the Omnipedia? That was the first one, yes. And uh, oh, I was right. I was looking this up. They actually had a feature in the first one that wasn't available in the second, uh, and that is oh, yeah. voice activation. As in, you talk to it and it will pick up. Yeah. And it will... Oh, right. That must have been janky. <laughs> yeah. It had, apparently, it had a very complicated training period. Where you, you know you'd have to go through, it. And, and this was the same for a lot yeah, of dictation yeah. software at the time. Uh, like now, you can just say three phrases and it's learnt your voice. Uh, back then, yeah, yeah. it it was like a twenty minute thing uh, going through. 
Um, yeah. But you could dictate and ask it questions for things you wanted it to search. But it was also voiced by Major Barrett doing the voice of the ship's computer. Yes. And, um, you know, and it would, it would have it opening up with her just saying, you know, loading LCAR's database, memory alpha, you know, and all that stuff. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people probably know this fact, but Major Barrett was obviously the, the real voice of the Enterprise and Starfleet computers in general, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was great to hear that voice because she's got an amazing, like, um, computer voice, Major Barrett. I mean, she was also um, Nurse Chapel in the original series and number one in the very first episode of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, her character's going to come back now, hasn't she, in, um, in, in Discovery? But yeah. So yeah, um, it was it was Major Barrett. It's the real Enterprise voice was the was the narrator for these things. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. Well, she wasn't the narrator. Uh, she was just doing all the interesting because they, they would have like this Elkar style layout, and Elkar's is the, yeah, you know, the the computer layout from the next generation. Um, so she would do all those kind of sound bites. Yes, there was a narrator that narrated a lot of the content, and that was Mark Lennard. Yeah, and actually, who was uh, famously Sarek in uh, yes. you know, Spock's father. Yeah, and I think the Next Generation Technical Manual, or at least the version that I have been have used, uh, it was Jonathan Frakes. It uh, was, was the, yes. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, obviously being in character as, as Riker, um, yeah. narrating um, um, all the different chapters and features and everything, with um, yeah. Major Barrett was the, the Elkar's voice. Yeah, um, it was really cool. So, I mean, I had the, the encyclopedia, the actual book. So what was the, the CD-ROM version like then? It was actually kind of the same, because I had the, the book as well. Um, they were very, very similar. They seemed, I think they kind of borrowed a lot of the articles from it, because you've got to think Simon Schuster were publishing this, you know, as real books as well. Yeah, yeah. They, they partnered with a company called Imagy for a lot of these. Um, I remember their logo kind of popping up quite a lot. And they were mostly done in Macromedia. So basically Flash was basically what they were using to do all the actual interface stuff. Yeah. And then the videos were using QuickTime or QuickTime VR. Oh, good old QuickTime. Yeah, they would show like um, like trailers to all the episodes. It would be all the US trailers that would be embedded yes. into there. They'd have clips. So where you've got the Federation and Klingons having a big battle at Deep Space Nine uh, in... Uh, the way of the warrior in season four, they had that yes. clip in there, you know, so you get these little clips for things. It was, it was basically a lot like a Star Trek themed version of Microsoft Encarta yeah, <laughs> is, the, and, um, is the best way to describe it. You know? Yeah. And um, obviously having the book um, again, we'll probably go into the, the individual, like the nineties sort of reference books. So they were friggin' amazing. Um, especially mm. the encyclopedia. It's amazing to think how big Star Trek had already gotten by that point that you could fill an entire it was a chunky old book as well. It was like, it was a thick book and it had yeah. everything. And, and the first version that I got in 1994, um, I think I got it as a Christmas present. Um, it was like, you know, at that point it would only got to about um, season six or, or seven of, of next generation. It maybe season mm-hmm. seven had just started. So it had like, um, it would have just had sort of scripts, early scripts for a lot of the episodes. I'm not sure how much is actually, uh, I could go back and look at it and find out, but I don't know how much they actually included of stuff that was from that season and, and two seasons of Deep Space Nine and no Voyager. Yeah, the the, the one that I had, so they, they did three versions of this, the Omnipedia, then the Encyclopedia, and then Encyclopedia 3.0. But the one I had had all of the original series and animated series, Next Generation, 
Uh, Deep Space Nine it had the first three seasons. It had the first season of Starship Voyager, and it went up to Starship First yeah. Contact. So it had all of that. And this came on four CD-ROMs. So you had like a, you know, a very big chunky jewel case that kind of you know would open sort of in the middle, and then it would they, that would split open again, uh, just with yes. the, you know, with all those discs. I think. I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly, but I'm pretty sure that Microsoft Encarta was one disc. I think it was, yeah. I mean, obviously, there wasn't a video for every article. There was like a subset mm. of, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 videos yeah. actually in it. There was a lot yeah. of animations um, as well, but they were compressed to hell. They were like a postage stamp size, which obviously yeah. the resolution of the screens we were using was probably like, you know, um, I think 640 by 480 was still been fairly common. Um, yeah. 800 by 600 was probably the most used resolution. So that wouldn't, that would still look okay. You know, a small video mm. like that, but, um, it would be heavily compressed. I think it would have been just a disc. Yeah. Which is amazing when you think how much yeah. was on it. So in, in contrast, like four discs kind of gives you an idea as to how much content was on this. Um, yeah. so I had, I had that one. I had captain's chair as well, which was actually really good. Um, that's one I really liked. I actually just tried to get it working again recently and I couldn't. I'm running it natively on Windows XP, which it was designed to run on. Yeah. And for the life of me, I cannot get it to fully launch it. I can get it into the, uh, but the moment you try to load up a bridge, it doesn't work. But effectively, it was a panorama of each bridge. You would have the original series Enterprise, you'd have the Enterprise D, the Defiant, there was the Enterprise E, and there was Voyager as well. And you had uh, different people narrating uh, along it as well. I've actually got oh, the, cool. the the manual for it here as well. And it's got um, uh, Kate Mulgrew uh, doing Janeway. You know, you've got Avery Books as uh, Cisco, Jonathan Frakes. I mean, that was great. Uh, we've got uh, Sulu and Worf. Um, Michael Dorn and um, um, George Takei, yeah. Um, yeah. The fact that they got these voices in um, really helped lend like an authenticity to it. Oh, so much so. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't. I'm saying it made it feel like you were in like an episode or something, which would be a really boring episode if it was just someone reading <laughs> like the Starfleet database. But it just felt like um, uh, it was just a real part of the Star Trek universe um, because because those voices are in there. Um, yeah, and it feels like you could be accessing a computer on the bridge of the Enterprise, and that's just probably how this stuff would have been presented. It was, it was much more yeah. sophisticated. It was kind of presented as though it was from the, uh, you know, the museum, the Federation Museum, you know, with uh, with all yeah. these uh, these ships and stuff, and as though it's almost kind of like you're on a holodeck and you've got these famous officers giving you a tour. And with it being QuickTime VR, basically it's kind of like a panorama. So you're kind of clicking and just dragging around a panoramic image to give you the sense of being in 3D space. You can click on different areas to basically jump to a different point on the bridge. So they would they would probably have like eight to ten different places you could view the bridge from. Um, you would have things that you could interact with. So you would have control panels you could tap on to you know, engage the warp drive or to fire torpedoes. And then you get like a little animation of that particular thing happening. You would also yeah, yeah. have like, you know, say a box on a table and you open it, you know, you click on it and it shows an animation of it opening. And then you would click on it and you would have like different medical devices inside. And it would then have an image that you could then basically rotate around. Not 
that dissimilar from what you get on a lot of websites now when they give you a 3D representation of the image that you can just click around and stuff. And it's just multiple photos taken from multiple angles. Yeah, QuickTime VR, though, they really pushed uh, QuickTime VR at that point in the 90s where you could do these sort of fisheye lens panoramas that you could scroll around. Mm. Um, and it's also, I remember, like, you know, like car sites that are selling cars, they would have, like, you could you could spin the car around and, and, and stuff. It was just really, it looked really cool mm. um, at the time. And it wouldn't like need, it wouldn't hammer your internet too much if it was something you were actually viewing over the internet. This is obviously all streamed off the CD, um, yeah. but it was it was cool. It was really cool. Oh, it really was. And I, I can't remember how you get to it, but I remember that there was an Easter egg in it where you could get to a Klingon bird of prey. Oh, cool. And go on that bridge as well. I think... I think there may have been like a transport button on something. I, I, just, I just remember that it wasn't listed as one of the ships you select, but you could get to it. Um, and so that was kind of a, a nice uh, sort of addendum there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, like you were saying, like um, how much of a pain it is to, to, to get these working. I mean, I've been there like like recently, but I've kind of got a quite a big collection of computers. Um, it's something, you know, another ho- hobby of mine as well as like, Star Trek. Um, I love reference materials, books about my favorite sort of, you know, shows and stuff. Like recently, actually, I was reading um transformers more than meets the eye which is just a big like encyclopedia <laughs> of transformers it's literally like it's well, it's not it's not so much an encyclopedia of every MacGuffin that's ever happened it's just um profiles of every transformers character from the original you know quote-unquote generation one um era um and it's like a bunch of comics it spans eight thick issues um that's a similar sort of thing you know you could well, i get lost in these things but with these Star Trek references, I mean, obviously we've got the books, and you know the books are there. You can pick them up and you can read them. There's actually mm. a fourth edition of the encyclopedia that's really friggin' expensive. I do want it, but I've actually got the third edition, which came out in '99, and that's got most of the my favourite Star Trek stuff in it anyway. So, mm. and oh god, they're dirt cheap now. Those '90s editions you can get for like you know five quid off eBay or you know any kind of second-hand bookshop and especially the third edition is really good um because it's in color um before then they were kind of black and white um but yeah in terms of the actual cd roms um i've got a big um computer collection um so uh, mainly sort of you know apple um computers you know past and present and um i've got a bunch of um macs that are from that era so I mainly use, like, I've got a titanium, this might be gibberish for people that aren't into any of this stuff, but I've got a titanium PowerBook G4, and that's great for um, what we call, like, the classic Mac OS kind of mm. era. Um, anything before there was an X on, on the end of the, the OS, you know, the, uh, the Mac uses. So, you know, 1 to 9, effectively, it covers that whole era from 1984 to about 2002. Basically, so this titanium power book is really good because it kind of covers that that era, and you can run nearly everything from those points in time. Um, yeah. So, and these these encyclopedias are part of that. Yeah, they, they were kind of out around the time of Windows ninety five and yes. Mac OS seven as well. Yeah. So it's uh, <laughs> they're going yes. back quite a ways. Yeah, and they did make. Um, I think the CDs were kind of dual sort of format. Where they were, I guess, because like you said, they were just flash with QuickTime movies. They weren't yeah. necessarily, they, were, they could be run sort of n- natively in either. Um, I think there was a binary for the Mac version and a binary for the Windows version, but I don't think having two separate binaries is a big, was a big like use of space because they all reference the actual flash files probably wouldn't have taken that much space. It was the videos, wasn't it? And the audio yeah. clips. And they're just shared by, by both versions. 
<clears throat> that's it, yeah. So you put the disc in and you wouldn't see, like, if you put it onto a Windows PC, you don't see the Mac version. If you put the Mac into yes. the Mac, you don't see the Windows version. It was kind of split. And uh, exactly. I'm looking at the uh, the minimum requirements and uh, you know, it's saying you need a 2X or faster CD-ROM drive <laughs> just disgusting. for the video. <laughs> what do they expect people to have? This crazy technology. Yeah, two-speed CD-ROM drive. So what you know what that means is uh, like a one-speed CD-ROM drive is the same speed as an audio CD player, like yeah. 150 kilobits, kilobits, kilobytes a second. Yeah, just so, not enough for the video. Yeah, no, no, it needs a faster, you know, double that effectively. That doesn't it? To streamline, I don't know what the pixel dimensions were of the video is, but six forty by four eighty. Really, yeah. oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, Actually, and they, yeah. they would always recommend. I remember that they would always recommend sixteen bit color for for all of these different titles that they were releasing. Um, and that was pretty hardcore for a computer to run that at the time. I mean, you would need mm. a decent amount of video uh, memory. I mean, yeah. sort of like a titanium power book, which is from two thousand and one. Um, I can that's boot overkill into. It's totally overkill. I can boot into Mac OS nine natively. I'm not running it in an emulator. It's literally Mac OS nine for realsies. Um, and that's kind of what these, uh, they're a bit glitchy if you run them in Mac OS X, and this might be gibberish a little bit. Uh, Mac OS X has like a, an emulation layer for classic OS, Mac OS 9 stuff, but sometimes some things are glitchy. So you run it and you can run it natively, boot your Macintosh OS 9. But what, what you could do uh, now, I mean, you can go into the Macintosh Garden, uh, which is a website uh, that hosts um, Abandonware, basically, and all this Star Trek stuff is basically Abandonware now. Um, it's also on archive.org, surprisingly. Yeah. It is, yeah, which is great. Some of the stuff there too. Yeah, which is brilliant because this stuff should be my archive for posterity, really. But it's quite fun just what, because um, they're still, you know, the information in them isn't not got wrong or anything now. But, you know, that that was stuff that was, um, when the show was being made, these things were, well, the show's being made now, but when those sort of, I would say, the golden age of Star Trek in the 90s, um, in my opinion, the golden age of Star Trek, um, Mm. It certainly wasn't when Enterprise was on TV. I think we could say that. So I do like Enterprise. Just there wasn't three TV shows, you know, and like a movie every year. But yeah, um, I would say like they're a great like just just a great like in different ways actually. They're a great reference to or a great snapshot of Star Trek in the nineties. They're a great snapshot of just how cool multimedia stuff on a computer was in those days. Mm. Um, and they're just a, a cool snapshot of just, you know, how technology was advancing and how, like, things like this were, were mind-blowing, you know, putting a disc in your computer, whether it was a Mac or a PC, and just being able to see this stuff that kind of looked pretty much like, you know, when we'd see someone use a computer on Star Trek with the real yeah. voices and everything. Like, five years before that, it wouldn't have been, it actually wouldn't have been possible at all. No, and if we put um, things into, um, you know, into, into context as well, that video on a computer was still mind blowing, you know, to even yeah. have that. And the internet was still dial up. So it took forever just to download an image. So to be able to, to download all of this content was like near impossible. It just, it didn't exist online. You know, yeah. right now we're very fortunate that we have sites like memory alpha, which is up to date and is constantly being updated. Whereas back then, this was how we consumed it, and the version that you got was basically what it was. Um, I recall seeing online that the 
the first version did get updates sent to people. Like they were given a disc that basically updated it, uh, which yeah, was which would be a very neat itself. idea at the time. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. As, as, as these shows were kind of being released, like Deep Space Nine and Voyager, there was very limited information on there uh, because it was so early on in its run. And this was the problem that you got with the print books as well, is that they were just so exhaustive in terms of information. But as it was still a series being released, they got outdated and started to miss information out. Yeah, I mean, it's also just in general, again, I'll keep referencing the books when we're probably going to talk about them in depth at some point, but like in the 80s, apart from like like fiction or, or, you know, um, books, um, where people are just like, you know, fan books, uh, Star Trek books and professional Star Trek, you know, story books, um, which were probably the main thing in the 80s. There wasn't really a lot of, there wasn't really, there was a Star Trek general, like te- the Starfleet technical manual, I think, and mm. Mr. Sc- uh, Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise. But in the 80s, there was very little of that. Um, it wasn't until Next Generation. I think probably the first one that really, I, uh, after this one dropped, it just went nuts with the reference books was, was the Star Trek the next generation technical manual. And it mm. is just, when I got that as a kid, I just read the hell out of it. And obviously a lot of this stuff is duplicated in, you know, the interactive and CD ROM version, but with, you know, it's a lot more, obviously it's way more dynamic than what you could do mm. with, with a page. But if anybody like gets the chance to check it out, I mean, it's pretty cheap. I think it's been re re Actually, I don't know if they've actually re-released it much. I think they just still have, I think the the uh, original you know version of that book has is just stayed in print for a long long time. But yeah, you pick it up for a couple of quid. It's yeah. awesome. Uh, there's some really good sketches and that explain things like the entire procedure for you know crash landing the uh, the saucer section you yeah, know, in an emergency, right. which they ended up actually showing in Starship Generations later on down the line. But at the time, like you'd see this whole procedure and you'd just be imagining what it would be like. You know, and, before- and you'd hear like um, the production team would often say, "Oh yeah, we had to use uh, the reference book uh, to work out how you know this is supposed to be done," um, because you know Michael Okuda or you know or someone wrote wrote a paragraph on it in that book, and they have to adhere to that because, well, especially the Star Trek Next Generation technical manual. I mean, it was it was you know Gene Roddenberry had a hand in that book. I think it was his idea. I think um, I remember reading like. Jeremiah was like, you know what? I think we should get some of this weird stuff we've come up with it in writing. <laughs> so, so, or I think, I think actually, you know, they had this stuff like written as notes in, you know, a, in, with the production team, and thought we could mm. just like Trekkies would friggin' like love this stuff. You know, we should put it in a book. And they were like, you know, and people like us, you know, Trekkies are like, hell yeah, I'd, I'd buy, I'd get, well, you know, it's that that meme of Fry in Futurama, take my money now, or whatever, you know, that it's, it's like that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it was. Um, I need to look. I need to look it up. I'm on like literally on memory alpha now, just checking that I'm not talking a load of crap. But um, yeah, um, it, it's got a forward by Gene Roddenberry. Uh, I don't know if they actually sort of moved that over to the um, the CD-ROM in some way. I don't think they did. Um, but it's also like interesting that these things, probably because of memory alpha don't really have anything, certainly not a hard copy of anything like that. I guess maybe you could make a DVD of it, maybe, but no one's made a modern version of this, have, have they, as far as I know? No, no th- th- this is definitely all stuff from like a bygone era. Um, I, I, I always wanted the interactive technical manual, and I had it for a few days. I had Oh, really? 
I had a friend who owned it, so I got to have a, a play with it on there. And it's, it's basically very much like Captain's Chair, where you've got like these panoramic things, but it's just the Enterprise. But you get to go to places like engineering and uh, and uh, and the transporter room and so on and look around there. But I got it as part of the emissary gift set. And that was both the most exciting and most disappointing thing that I ever ended up ordering. Um, and oh, that was from cool. one of those those little sci-fi magazines, which we kind of talked about in the first episode. Uh, yeah. You know, where you kind of do mail. Starlog and... Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, it's because it came with... It, so this is a compilation set. It had the Star Trek The Next Generation Interactive Technical Manual. It also had a demo version of Deep Space Nine Harbinger, which was like a, you know, that's a weird game. Yeah. Point and click adventure game, uh, which yeah. I was really curious to try out. I really wanted to give that a go. It had an audio CD of conversational Klingon, um, which I believe Michael Dawn actually read out. And it had a VHS copy of the pilot episode emissary, which I was so excited to get my hands on because it wasn't actually available to buy on its own at the time. Did you have the same so, reaction uh, as uh, Mike from uh, Red Letter Media when the Enterprise leaves uh, Deep Space Nine, crying for them to like take take you uh, <laughs> uh, with? <laughs> I know which bit you mean, but no, because it didn't work. Good. I had to return it. So the video didn't work. Yes, I got. I I couldn't get Harbinger to work. That demo just was not compatible. Couldn't get it to go. Um, it was a DOS just, game, wasn't it? it was, this is before Windows 95, I think. It was the yeah, MS so, DOS game, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so some some games were tricky to install at the time. And I it just oh, I could oh, not yeah. get it to work for the life of me. You'd have to go through like um you have to go into DOS and you'd have to go through like a configuration thing, normally on a big bright blue screen with like white text yeah. to pick your like sound card channel um to check your graphics work and yeah, it was it wasn't easy. People that didn't that, that didn't feel this pain. Back hmm. in the day. <laughs> yeah, I managed to get the, the technical manual working, so I got to play with that for a little bit. Um, but the problem with the VHS release was that it was uh, it was NTSC. It was American. Oh, so, so where, where did, who got this? So, so you got it, and the, they obviously yeah, this, got the American a, version. A mail order from the, uh, you know, that's released in the UK. It had, yeah. it had a UK release. It was around 1996. And... The video was American, so everything else would work, oh, but not the video. It basically came out uh, in black and white and yeah, very yeah. staticky, and the audio didn't really work properly, so it was basically unwatchable. Yeah, um, and so with that and the game not working, that's half of the gift set not working, and so I ended up having to return it. I kind of wish sucks, man. that yeah, I kind of wish that I'd. Um, transferred the CD to a cassette so that I could have at least kept that bit. Um, and of course, the yeah. technical manual doesn't work without the CD-ROM. And there was no way you'd have storage space to store that locally. So I had to ship all of that back. Um, but yeah, that, and as a kid, I was so excited for the set to arrive. I remember peeling off the cellophane just you know over it just and having that big box. Because this was a big box. This is something that we don't get now anyway, because you can just get mm. streamed of the episodes and people don't buy a lot of these books now, so they don't really make them. But in those days, if you got some kind of Star Trek MacGuffin that was a really cool gift set or, or the box set of the like the, the the six movies that were the ones that were out at the time, 
that was exciting as balls. You would get mm. like, and the artwork was always like absolutely beautiful. Like the box was looked amazing. Often it would be the Starfleet Arrowhead, like Delta, with some amazing. Sometimes it'd be like shiny holographic stuff, wouldn't it? Um, mm. Latin, well, the lent, lenticular stuff. It was, it was. Yeah, this amazing. this one was embossed, so it had like like all the letters oh, and wow. uh, it was as stuff were raised slightly. And this was in the you know we're, we're talking mid nineties, so this is the era of the big box for software. You know, software would always yeah. come in a very big cardboard box. And this was like even larger than your standard size that you would get. Um, so, you know, it, it had prominence. And it was uh, the actual, um, the physical like stuff was just as exciting as like actually doing whatever this stuff was to be used for. Um, mm. Like I said, it was just so exciting to get like, I remember like, like being so excited just getting a, a, a new start video of something Star Trek. Mm. I remember like this one purchase that for some reason stuck in my head. I think I got, there's actually a couple. I remember specifically getting the Caretaker, uh, mm -hmm. the video of that, and getting like, and I went from that and I jumped to like episode one, video 1.10, which was like, um, had the 37s and twisted on it. Yeah, and that's right. They, they did it as point something. So you'd have the season yeah. number point, almost kind of like, a, it's almost kind of like a reference to a star date. Is kind of how exactly, it felt, yeah. You know, rather than just like, yeah, and and, and because it was like a, you know, you're, you're not talking actual episodes, you're talking which box release. So exactly. then would have been putting you into like episode twenty, kind of. Thing. Yeah, you'd be hitting like like the last bundle of episodes. I think they tended to always get to like something dot thirteen. Um, yeah. Normally, it'd be the last one. Then you go to the jump to the next um, season. But um, yeah, I remember getting that and being really excited because often, you know, you'd open it up, there might be a pamphlet for like some extra Star Trek MacGuffin that's coming out. Um, sometimes the inside cover would have like little details of production, like light information, or just an overview of the synopsis of the episode. Um, and like the cassette would often be wrapped in cellophane. Um, so mm. just ripping that off and getting really excited about watching it. And by that point, I, you know, I had my own TV and my own. I think I got my hand-me-down video recorder because my parents got a new one, so I got the old one. But it worked perfectly fine. So I'd, I'd, be, I'd be watching the hell out of Star Trek, you know, and getting these episodes because you know you couldn't pick and choose when to watch episodes uh, through TV. You know, mm. you got to see them more often if you had Sky, but you were still you have to wait for them to get through a cycle of whatever seasons to be able to get to maybe an episode you wanted to watch again. You could just jump on Netflix and be like, yeah, I want to watch season three, episode four. Bang, there you go, I've got it. Um, you have to go to a shop and buy it. But what you could do is go to the encyclopedia and just choose an episode and watch the, the, the trailer, as I would often do. I, I, <laughs> I did find it quite uh, yeah. amusing. I, the, the, the commercials were all the American ones, and they were very cheesy. I think it had the scripts as well, didn't it, to the episodes? On no, it didn't. There was a companion guide right, that yeah. they released so they did like a series guide and script library and that had all the scripts it had um the trailers for each episode as well and they did one for the next generation and they did one for deep space nine so simon just did release those as part of their interactive sets as well um there's yeah. one final one that was kind of like an outlier which kind of existed halfway between a game and a non-game and that was the starship creator series did you ever play with any of those I, 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 no, I didn't. Again, I, I remember, um, again, mostly from reading, like getting Star Trek monthly every single month and mm. have a section on what CD-ROMs have come out and all that stuff. And I remember seeing it on there and thinking it looked really cool, but I never actually, again, I don't think I had a PC then. 
Um, so mm. I, mean, I would have had a games console, but I didn't have a PC, so I wouldn't have been able to have it uh, to use it anyway. Um, I yeah. remember I really wanted the Star Trek Generations game because that was that never came out on a console, and that was a cool what first person game. But yeah, that, oh, yeah. Um, no Star Trek Breaker, I never, um, I never used. What was it? I guess yeah, literally making Star Trek. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm almost going to backtrack and take back my statement about the emissary gift set being the the biggest excitement and disappointment because the more i think about it that might be starship creator <laughs> um i had the first one yeah. they, they had two releases well, uh, technically three they had starship creator they then had a deluxe edition and i cannot remember what was different in that one um and then they had warp 2 the sequel but it, it had the tagline of don't dream it build it and what it was was that you could design a starship you could choose its, you know, how it looked, the kind of systems that it had in, you know, create a crew and all this kind of stuff and send it on missions. And that to me sounded fantastic. When you actually play it, it is some of the most boring tripe I've ever played. And I tr actually installed it and I managed to get this one working. I decided to give it another go. Right. And it's bad. Oh, really? Um, so you, when, when it says you can design a ship, you, you can choose from a class of different ships. So you've got the Galaxy class, you've got the Excelsior class, the Defiant, Voyager, Constitution, you know, the, and the Miranda class. And I think that's it for the first one. And you get to choose from a selection of warp nacelles, hulls, and saucer sections, of which there's only about three or four options for each. So you're kind of limited in the physical design. You can then choose your crew, and all of this is done on credits. So you have a certain amount of credits, and the idea is that you can then send your ship out on missions, you earn credits that you can then use to upgrade things further. And you can install different systems which do a lot of different things. So you can improve, as time goes on, you can get better sensors, better weapons, better shields, and things. And all, all the missions are, are scripted. The original version you it would have a text document that would allow you to write your own missions in its own little scripting language. Oh, cool. The Warp 2 actually had an interface for it, which was supposed to make it a lot easier. And it, again, it sounds really good, but all that's happening is like you've got four missions in the game. One of them is a shakedown cruise. Another one is to go to a planet. Um, and there's a yeah. couple of other things as well. And all you're doing is you're just leaving it to kind of go. You get like a little text output. And effectively, all it's doing is it's just taking stats and running them through. I think that if people enjoyed Championship Manager, it was a little bit like right, that, yeah. that you're setting everything up and then you're just setting your team off to play and then you're getting the result output. But it takes a long time because you've got two options. You've got real-time or accelerated. Real-time takes forever because you've got ships traveling at warp to another system. I went, got dressed, had a shower, uh, not in that order. I did it the other way around. I had a shower, <laughs> then I got dressed, <laughs> then I had breakfast, right. <laughs> you know, and I came back and my ship still hadn't even gotten halfway. Um, when yeah, you try yeah. it on accelerated, it's double speed, which is still painfully long. They had a stealth mode. So I think the idea was that you could play it at work, have it running in the background, and you just see the logs as to you know how everything's kind of going, just in a little mini window with no other graphics, oh, cool interface and stuff. Um, and I think that if somebody was into scripting and was really into numbers, 
maybe it would be more interesting. But for me as a kid, and even just revisiting it now as an adult, it's so dull. One thing that Warp 2 allowed you to do, though, was you could export your ships and import them into uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine Dominion Wars, which was one of their DS9 games. That's a real-time strategy, yeah. Yeah, which was also disappointing. (laughs) That was also a really bad game, which I will no doubt rant about another day. But I was so disappointed with the first release that I never even picked up or even looked at the Warp 2 edition. I mean, I saw it around, but I just, I never gave it a go because I just, I I, I just didn't enjoy the first. It didn't sound too exciting, I'll be honest, when you uh, described it there, so I don't blame you. Yeah, like, (laughs) the the premise is there. The, the, The idea of you get to design a ship and you get to do all this stuff, but the options that they give you are so limited, and when you actually send the ship out to do stuff, you're just letting it play out. There is no interaction at all. And so right, yeah. the effort that you're putting in versus the reward that you get afterwards, you just, it's not really there. It just, it seemed like a great concept that just was not implemented well at all. And I I'm don't sure know someone there was enjoyed it and loved it and it's their favorite thing. That's, that's it. Like, you know, and, and if there is somebody out there that has played this and loves it, then I would love to hear from that person because yeah. that that would make me feel so much better about this if there is somebody out there that did thoroughly love it. And I think that if, if you were into the kind of numbers and stats and could actually get deep into it and were starting to code your own missions, I think at that point, if that's the kind of person you are and that's the stuff that you enjoy, this is actually probably a really good piece of software. But if you're not, which I, I never was as a kid, yeah, it's it's probably one of the weakest things that they ever made. But reading through, you know, technical information and episode guides and watching trailers, that's the stuff that I felt Simon and Schuster really excelled at. And those kind of uh, packages were just so much fun to go through, especially at that point. Like you were saying, the multimedia age was a really exciting time. And that really um, kind of capitalized and emphasized like how good that stuff was. Yeah, I don't think, um, like I mentioned, obviously, that they're kind of spin-offs from the books, but I don't think they, they negate each other, really. I think you can enjoy mm-hmm. both separately because they give you a... It, it revolves around, you know, mostly the same kind of like, information, but they're presented so differently. Oh, um, yeah. I think you can get huge amounts of value and enjoyment out of either of them, really. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I I think mean, the technical manual is probably the perfect yeah. example of that, that they... You know, a lot of the information is kind of the core thing, but like you say, the the presentation is so wildly different that it's the kind of thing you could easily own both and not feel that you're you're wasting your time with one of them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, the great thing about these things now, I mean, they're most they're pretty much abandonware. So archive.org, Macintosh Garden, you could download the ISOs. Um, and you can run them. It's a bit of a pain to get some of these things to run because you might have to use a virtual machine and get Windows 95 going um, and, you know, old versions of QuickTime or, like I said, a Mac that's running Mac OS 9. And you'd run yep. them from the ISOs, um, which is good as well because you're not messing around with disks. And, uh, but I think you can probably pick up the original disks as well. Again, like you were saying, Al, they, they always came in, like, really beautiful-looking boxes as well with, like, foil, like, print, printed, like... Star Trek text and like, you know, mm. uh, embossed sort of art, artwork and f- feelies and things inside. Um, so, yeah, you can pick this stuff up. 
if you're just yeah. someone that's got into like the 90s Star Trek stuff, um, you'll love like how that they were, they were a really great compliment, um, to the TV shows. And they still, like I said, none of the information hasn't been negated by any by the subsequent 20 years. Um, it's all still, uh, you know, Star Trek to uh, these days, I think, references back to this stuff, you know, because mm. it's basically canon, you know, um, it's basically yeah. treated like canon. What's in those things? Yeah, and even though Memory Alpha gives you so much more information and technical detail and is up to date, <laughs> is the other thing. Yeah. Um, the multimedia stuff still isn't there. Like you can, That's right, yeah. You can find some trailers on YouTube, which is great, but you don't really have all of that, and especially the interactive 3D models that they would show, yeah. like the QuickTime VR stuff. That's stuff that's kind of missing these days. It's not all in one place. Um, you can, you know, you can look up the article on um, Memory Alpha, and then you can go and hunt down a clip or something. But like, like, um, like I said, in, in the technical manual, you'll get really cool like diagrams and acudagrams of um, how things work. Like I remember in the technical manual, you've got some great um, graphics of like, um, you know, things like dedication plaques and um, how the holodeck works and the breakdown of a star, starship engine. I mean, a lot of that stuff is on memory alpha in, in, in a way, but it's more sort of, you know, text walls, like describing it as opposed to, you know, lots of illustrations. Mm. Um, so it's, I mean, to be honest, these books, and I think the CD-ROMs probably, if you find them on eBay, they probably like literally go for pennies. I think anybody's, doesn't they're massively collectible because they're not, they, they, you know, they were fair, they were readily available, weren't they, back in the day? They were yeah. difficult to get. Yeah, I don't know what happened to my encyclopedia edition. I really don't know what happened to it. It's, it's been lost. I mean, you know, you move across the Atlantic, things go missing. They do. <laughs> I would love to get my hands on another copy just for that nostalgia kick because it's, uh, it's definitely a sort of bygone era. And the more that we're talking about this, the more it's made me want to, to go back and, and just see those things again. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I, I, I think um, as much as you can just grab like, you know, the... Um, you can just, just grab the ISO file off, off um, archive.org. It's just nice to have that box and, like, you know, um, you might struggle maybe to get a box and get everything complete. But, um, I mean, well, you know what? I'm looking looking on, like, eBay now. There's someone selling a sealed copy of Star Trek Omnipedia um, mm. for $8. Nice. So that's literally in. And that box was chunky. Um, so <laughs> there's going to be a lot of goodies in, in there. I think that would have been the earlier version. Um, like you say before, they just called it encyclopedia, but, um, yeah. Um, yeah, go on eBay, check it out, grab the books as well. Cause they're dirt cheap and they're amazing. In fact, the encyclopedia had a 2016 version, which I haven't actually looked or bought because it's quite expensive. I think it was like a hundred pounds or something, which is insane. Jeez. Um, yeah, the, I mean the book, the old, the nineties version wasn't like cheap, cheap, but it was like 20 quid or something. Um, so I guess you can double that in today's money, but yeah, it's quite expensive, but they're, apparently they're like, it's like three times as big now because it's got enterprise, um, you know, the other movies that have come out since discovery, you know, it, it, to be honest, maybe it's not worth buying it because you might, it might be worth waiting another 10 years <laughs> to grab all the stuff <laughs> that's yet to be made, you know, but yeah, they're very, very cool. So yeah, um, I might have to do, I might have to go and look up this stuff again as well. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let, let's move on because uh, now on Long Way Testers, we're going to be picking up Star Trek Enterprise season two, episode four, which is Dead Stop, which actually is not 
really a two-part episode, but it does follow on from the previous one. So it kind of is unofficially. Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's one of those like previously on Enterprise kind of things. Um, we, we'd had the previous episode, Minefield, and this yes. takes place four days after where they've, you know, very quick summary. They've been into a minefield with cloaked mines. One of them got attached to the hull and um, ended up injuring Reed as he was trying to disarm it. Yes. And so they've got damage to the ship. There's a, a big hole in the saucer section. And uh, Reed's leg is it has basically been impaled. Pretty much, yeah. He was attached to the bomb. Yeah, and it starts off with... Uh, with Trip and Archer kind of surveying the damage and realizing that they're going to need some titanium alloy to to fix it up, and that they're probably looking around three to four months to get it fixed. And at that point, they're only going to have like a maximum speed of warp two, which puts them about a decade away from Jupiter Station, and they've got no long-range communication. So they are pretty dead in the water and not in a great place. It's interesting, obviously, you mentioned that it does reference directly and takes place directly after the previous episode. And mm. um, we touched upon this as well, like I think in the last episode, where it was very rare for a non-two-part episode to reference what happened in the previous one directly. Mm. Maybe a vague allusion to something that happened like two years ago or something, but not literally, we did this in the last episode, it did this, therefore it's going to cause us to do that. So it's kind of foreshadowing... Um, maybe deliberately, I don't really know, probably not really, but, um, it's foreshadowing kind of the, the, the path that, or the format that the show would take when we get into, um, basically from the final episode of season two, yeah. from that point on, it would become, you know, story arcs, the one that would span multiple episodes and it was way, it was so much better for it. Yeah. M- M- Manny Koto coming in and, and pushing that really made a difference. Oh yeah. And then that was kind of the format for season three and, and four. Yeah, it turned it into, in my opinion, one of the best Star Trek show, one of the best Star Trek collection of seasons three and four um, mm. of the ball. You know, which for a lot of people could be a controversial thing to say because a lot of people hated um, Enterprise. But um, the first two seasons, obviously, a lot of people will tend to just dismiss it as, "Oh, don't bother with those. Go just straight to season three. But there's there's a, there's a decent amount of decent like episodes in season one or two that get forgotten about. And this is one of them. Um, yeah. But yeah, the only other example that I thought of the top of my head of a similar, you know, referencing the previous episode was Star Trek Voyager when they did it in The Gift, um, mm. which wasn't, you know, a part of, a two-part, but it literally followed on like a matter of maybe hours or a day after the after the previous um, episode. But yeah, um, so yeah, there, there was the minefield and they're in, a, they're in bad shape. And, um, yeah, we really, sick like, bay with like a two week recovery period, which he's not happy about. Yeah. And it really emphasizes the fact that unlike, you know, my enterprise takes place before the other series, it's basically a prequel to star Trek, the original series. It's like a hundred years before, um, captain Kirk's era in the original series. Mm. Um, so it really emphasizes and enterprise was good at that. Like how, how far away from everything they are when their yeah. warp drive fails. I mean, yeah, 10 years to get back. Um, to uh, uh, to Jupiter Station, and and this is this is one of those episodes that also highlights like they they mention how long it's going to take for them to get to places, and then yeah. it kind of cuts to it. You, they do cut a lot of time, and so you you don't get the feeling of it. But they they do at least represent this takes a few days before they get yes. to this point. You know, so you at least yeah. kind of get that. But yeah, you're, you're you're skipping points because 
you've got 45 minutes to get through it. Um, and I think the sense of like being stranded, you didn't really get in, um, apart from like an episode where two people were like left on a planet on, on their own for some reason, like because of a Wayne mission went wrong or, you know, when like Janeway and Jakote were put on that planet because they had a disease. <laughs> yeah. Like you know, Picard and Crusher, like Darmok and all that stuff. And, um, attached is the Picard and Crusher episode. Um, things mm. like that, but not where they're all on the ship, you know, kind of, you know, they're okay. The life support's on, but they're just adrift. Um, I mean, okay, that happened to the Enterprise in disaster, but I don't think anybody was worried they wouldn't be able to go home or anything. It was kind of yeah. just, just, you know, we don't blow up and then we'll probably be okay. This is literally like we're screwed. We're completely screwed until we get, we need to fix this. And we're never going to be able to get anywhere. And not only that, but it also broke the format that they would normally have of ship gets damaged and the next episode is all squeaky clean and fine. This is the first time yeah. when you're kind of like, actually, this is still broken and they're still in trouble. And that's something that I really liked about it. And, and it has a lot of points that it keeps bringing up for things. Like Archer has still got his little squeak in the deck plating in his quarters. You know, he's telling Porthos that he thought that Trip had fixed it. And it's still happening. Yeah. So you get all these little callbacks to all these little things. It's like, we've still got issues and they're still going on. They still haven't been fixed. I think that's just beautiful. You get a kick out of it if you watched it. I mean, at the time I watched like Star Trek Enterprise quite, you know, hardcore, watched it every week. You know, it came out, an episode came out when it was, you know, new. So mm. I, I would like, oh yeah, I remember that, you know. And um, it, like, it, it was still being released on VHS, I think that first season. Actually, yes, I think that was, was the last yeah. season of Star Trek. I, I actually remember um, I had a mate who worked at Woolworths um, down the road from where I lived, and they would obviously that'd be one of the big places people would buy their videos from. And I remember I used to get him to put aside when they got the, the latest Star Trek Enterprise episode in, or it was just Enterprise then. And I did actually collect, I think, nearly all the videos from the first season. And mm. I even like sent off for the big cardboard like display case so you could get all the episodes of all the videos and you could put them in this display case. Um, and you'd have like the whole first se season, but then they, they stopped making them after the first se season and ended up, being the, ended up being the first series that went on DVD, maybe I'm thinking, or it was, yeah. And it, they, were, they were the first ones to be in widescreen as well. And HD of course, as well. Yeah. So it was yeah. quite a few interesting, f I'm watching this on Netflix today. Um, it was actually in HD. Um, it looked really crisp and like quite film-like. Actually, the sort of transfer, whatever you want to call it, or you know, um, that, that they had on there looked really, really nice. Um, I was still watching it in standard definition. Um, I wouldn't watch Star Trek in HD until I'd sort of, you know, got a copy of an episode, should we say, through non regular means. Um, and uh, I think my laptop screen, I would watch it on that, and that would have been like, you know, maybe um, 1280 by something or others, so maybe 12700 or something, and PowerBook G4. So that would be like as close to HD as I could get. I didn't have a TV that did that. So that was when I was like, wow, these look really cool. Um, but yeah, um, so the VHS tapes, I was getting those. And um, yeah, it was and it also like the fact that Tucker doesn't go, can't just, doesn't go off and build a gadget and bang it. Everything's fine. He literally just shrugs his shoulders and says, I can't do anything. It's like, yeah. we literally need spare parts and there's nothing we can do. Yeah, it's, it's going to take us a while to fix it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wasn't it 10 months, he said, or something, at best, or something, or three, or a couple of years? or uh, Three to four. Yeah, yeah. Three to four months is what he was saying, yeah. which is, that is a long, long time. 
to do it. Yeah, still, they'll be dead still in space in the middle of no, no nowhere doing that. It's quite, you really get a feel of how lonely space can be when you when stuff isn't working. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> wish that they, they did more of this. I really do. I, I think it would have been good had they pushed it a little bit more, but I'm so glad for this episode for that reason. And I, I like yeah. that they get a communication from Tellerites, which uh, in Enterprise, we still hadn't seen them. And they're big when it comes to the founding of the Federation. We've seen them in the original series a couple of times. Yeah, That's it. And they're, they're told that uh, you know they, they've got coords to a, a repair station. And this is all distorted audio coming through communications. And uh, Interpol describes them as not the most agreeable species, but trustworthy. <laughs> which, yes. which also kind of, it's the trustworthy bit that really sets you up to like, okay, well, if they're trustworthy and they're offering this, then... This must be legit. So it's referencing, um, obviously, this this is an event that would have happened, you know, in the future of, to, to the Enterprise crew. But um, I think it's referencing, like, we see the Tellarites uh, in a big way in, in Journey to Babel in the mm. original series when they kind of get accused of, like, you know, attempting to, like, cause some trouble or something. And they get really, like, defensive and angry very quick quickly. So we get an idea of just that episode there a little bit, you know, high maintenance um, you know, so I think it was kind of cool that that was kind of reflected a little bit in what in what um, Topol described. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And they 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 arrive at the station, which again, this is one of those. It'll take them. I can't remember how long they said. They, they said it would take a few days to arrive. Three days, I think. They said, yeah, two. Yeah, and and then they they arrive at the station, um, which probes them, which. Uh, you know, kind of gets them a bit unsettled. And then I love it did the, the standard. It did, it, it did the standard Star Trek probe of let's do a light on the bridge. And everyone <laughs> goes, oh, no. And then they look <laughs> the slight. Now, how many episodes? <laughs> you need to do a montage of, like, we've been probed, Cap- Captain, because, like, there was, like, motion <laughs> picture. There's, like, the Ilea gets probed, which sounds rude, but you know what I mean? Because that was mm. the beam of light, and they just all go, oh, my God, there's a light on the thing. Maybe I think in the original series a couple of times, there'd be a big, huge flash, and they'd be like, ah, oh, we've been probed. Next generation happens like every other week. Like, yeah, it's like, it was just that. Um, yeah. I think it was just, yeah, it was like a yellow beam went over them, didn't it? Or something. Yeah. It looked good though. It was effective. That's it. And like Federation sensors would always be invisible or if it was a probe, it was just something in a torpedo casing. And, yeah. Yeah. But aliens, they use visible light. They fire <laughs> like, like junk at you to probe you. And it's like, yeah. come on, you've got better technology than that. You know, even the Vidians can extract someone's lung just by like practically just be pointing a gun at them and not even shooting them with anything really. Mm. So yeah, it's just like okay, that was two hundred years in the future, I guess. But <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Well, the people that made this station, as we'll see, we well presumably advanced. So yeah, yeah. And I I love that after they probe it, it reconfigures itself to fit the saucer sanction. Yes, that is just a beautiful. It's just a wonderful shot, and I, I think it's really, really clever how they did that. And a bit of a red flag as well, to a degree, because they're like, oh, it's kind of a bit too convenient. And Arch yeah. is already, like, suspicious, like, yeah. which is a, a little bit early, I think. I think he probably should have been a bit more enthusiastic at that stage. It's like, okay, phew, right, yeah, let's just go for it, you know. But he's already like, oh, that's a yeah, bit weird. It's like- to Paul seems impressed, though, because the environment on board the station is not, really habitable, but then it reconfigures itself to that of a Minshara-class environment. So basically Earth-like with oxygen. Yeah, before and, it was and like so. a million degrees, wasn't it? And I'd like poison gas. 
inside it. it and then yeah it scans them and then it reconfigures them to basically earth yeah yeah which is kind of cool i love when they beam aboard and it is just clean and white and kind of sterile but I, I love just that white interior it just it looks and feels very futuristic especially in enterprise unthreatening and like angelic like oh no 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 bad guys are in this place look at how bright it is yeah and they've even got those lights there's there's like massive light strips that kind of move to kind of indicate like without any language needed just go this way yeah, the, the lights just kind of yeah. go in that direction, which is kind of a little bit like on the Enterprise D, where they have the lights sort of indicating, you know, you go this way to get to the holodeck. Kind of like a J.J. Abrams uh, um, interior starship, <laughs> <laughs> a little minus the lens flare. But and also, yeah. like, it's got a very pleasant computer voice. Um, the computer voice is actually Roxanne Biggs Dawson, um, yep. a.k.a. Balana Torres, or Banana Torres, as I like to call her. Um <laughs> She's got a really good computer voice. She could be a, co- a voice of computer in a Star Trek series. Well, well, um, this, this is the interesting thing, because she's, well, she'd voiced a computer before. Oh, really? Because she had the Cardassian probe. That, oh, yeah, the dread, Dreadnought thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So she, she'd already voiced the computer for that one. Uh, she directed this episode as well, but they yes. auditioned a bunch of people to do the voice, and she just happened to do the best read of it. So she wasn't actually intended to to be providing that, but of all the people that they had record, she was the best. And it, and she sounds fantastic on it. it. It really does work. It's got a really good computer voice. I mean, I really like Roxanne Biggs Dawson. I think Belana Torres is a great a great character. Voyager doesn't mm. really get enough credit for being... I mean, Janeway does, um, but Voyager doesn't get enough credit for being a great female-led TV show because you could argue that all the best characters are basically the women on that TV yeah. show. And they, they basically are in most of the episodes which you can't necessarily say about the other Star Trek series, um, maybe Deep Space Nine. But um, yeah, um, she's great as this unthreatening, yet kind of creepy as well in a weird way, because it's almost too nice sounding. Not as in chirpy, but just kind of, yeah, neutral. Yeah, it's enough to be friendly and pleasant, but also enough to be, you know, like I... Creepy. Is there an yeah? Is there, it's creepy? Is there an ulterior motive going on, and so on, which yeah. kind of comes into things later? But I love that they've got that hologram of the Enterprise. Yeah, that looks cool, and it shows every hull breach, every damaged system, including, and this is just a wonderful throwback: the scratch that was there in Broken Bow when they were in the inspection pod and scratched the hull, and um, yes. Like the second scene, I think, in Broken Bow. Yeah, and, and Archer's like, I thought I told you to have that repainted. <laughs> and and again, yeah. just going back to your earlier point, Trip's kind of like, well, I haven't had the time. <laughs> yeah, it's like, busy. I'm getting around to it, or whatever it <laughs> yeah. is, yeah. And I mean, Tucker's great. Like, Tucker and Archer, like, um, Connor Trenier is the actor, isn't it? And um, Scott Bakula, mm. who obviously, or Count, Count Bakula, as I like to call him. <laughs> Um, he is like, oh, oh, I friggin' love like, like Scott Bakula. I already did from Quantum Leap, but I just have, uh, I mean, he's, he, Captain Archer is just friggin' brilliant. I'm sorry, but he really is. I mean, mm. if you, he, he really, well, I mean, the, the, the marketing at the time was like, you're going to meet Captain Kirk's childhood hero. And you really believe that he could be, you know, um, someone that would have gone down as a legend because, 
he's vulnerable. He's, you know, I don't want to say masculine, because that's kind of an easy thing to say, but vulnerable, yet sort of solid and there's solidarity. He, he's got a commanding presence, but he's still likable at all points. And the same could be said of Tucker, um, actually. And to Paul is brilliant as well. Um, again, she doesn't get enough credit. You know, people think of like, you know, all oh, like a sexy, like Star Trek actress. I think probably Jerry Ryan is the default. And again, she, she actually doesn't get enough credit. She is frigging like awesome. Mm-hmm. It's a very similar character probably to Paul, actually, to Seven of Nine. That same logical, dispassionate, the one that's supposed to be do the commentary on humanity type character that they love in Star mm-hmm. Trek. You know, they, it was that spot. Um, she's really brilliant, and also being not that impressed by everything, in the, in the, by, you know, by the station um, when they're walking around it in this initial scene. Yeah, yeah, I, I think as well, like with you saying about Archer and and how he is. I think the previous episode, Minefield, really early on gives you a really good look into his command style and his yeah. personal relationships with the crew, where he's he's trying to get read to kind of open up and just have just a pleasant meal that's not work related and, and things and uh you know and it, it has a lot of good contrast there yeah and you see like how you know the vulnerable side i mentioned like there's been times when he literally feels like he doesn't know what to do because this is all he's the first person to do a lot of this stuff yeah whereas you can see the evolution from him to captain kirk where you don't really get a sense that captain kirk and i don't think like Kirk is, has a lot more like layers to him than a lot of people say. He's not just like a, a, a jolly sort of space captain that beats up the aliens and like cracks onto the alien like women. He's like when there's a very difficult situation, you can see how calm and and confident and how he won't rush in and people people say, oh yeah, Kirk was all about firing phases and blowing stuff up. But he, he wasn't at all. He was like um, he would sit and ask everybody what the situation is. You know, Spock would tell him what the what they need to do, what the course of action is probably the best thing. He would get advice from everybody, and he would take the best course of action at that point. But you didn't really get a yeah. sense he was ever lost. He, he would always take responsibility for everything. And yeah. I think that Archer shared a lot of that, but he approached things with a more naive boyhood wonder yes. um, yeah, yeah. of exploration, which is exactly what you want for the first captain going out there where you don't have a history of experience to look back on. No, you know, an no academy training far. that would have prepared you for a lot of this stuff. Um, yeah, and I think, um, like I mentioned already, that it, it was quite early on in the episode when it starts to reconfigure to fit the Enterprise that he's already quite reluctant. But I think that's because he's been burned by a, two or th- several times in the first season with, you know, kind of aliens that they've been kind of been very open to welcome because they were just super excited about having a first contact, but then they'd try and they'd start shooting at them. So that's probably that, you know. Yeah, and he, he's also kind of made a point earlier that it's like we've we've been helping other people. It's time somebody helped us. Yeah, he literally says that, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's it's him getting to that kind of point where it's like, okay, the the universe kind of owes us at this point <laughs> for all the good that we've yeah. done. Somebody out there must be able to help us, um, and 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 help them. The the station tries because. You know, it, it offers to do all the repairs and it's like, select a method of compensation for repairs. And it just offers them a choice between three warp coils, five deuterium injectors, and 200 liters of warp plasma. And they, they feel that not getting rid of the hardware is the way to go. So the warp plasma is the thing that they kind of go up. Oh, it's, it's, you know, we, 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 can, we can live without this. And it's the fact that yeah. it's going to take 34.2 hours to repair which yes. blows the mind of 
trip because he's like, this is three months at Jupiter Station. It's three yes. or four months for them, you know, on the ship itself. Jupiter Station, you're still looking at three months and it's going to be done in three, three four point two hours. Yeah, Tucker on his own with his like engineering crew. I mean, you know, that's, you know, four months um, if they can find Tritanium Alloy. Um, yeah. And if he hasn't, I don't know what he'd do, but it, like, you, I don't know, it's years <laughs> potentially if no one came to rescue them. So, yeah, it's like, yeah. it's like that they can't, they can't turn that down, can, can mm. they? And it leads yeah. on to a really interesting scene. Um, With the recreation facility? The recreation facility. And they kind of make a joke about it, it looks a bit naff. I think we want our money back because <laughs> yes. um, it just looks like a nice little like like dining a- area. Um, yeah, it, it kind of just looks like um, you, you know, just like a canteen somewhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. And very sterile. But they do have, and I, I love this because they've got the replicators in the tables, which are just white uh, white lights in there. And I've always always enjoyed lights in tables ever since seeing them in ten forward on the next generation. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of them, isn't there? They love shoving a, they love stuffing a some lights in a table in Star Trek. Well, it looks, it looks so futuristic. <laughs> lights everywhere is great. That's why I have smart bulbs all over my house. I love it. Ten Forward is really great lighting as well. It's very dark. So yeah. when the, the crew members are sitting at that that sort of bar, it sort of lights them in a really cool cool um, looking way. So yeah, uh, that's yeah. a really good point. But the uh, I, I love that these look like stove hobs, just white yeah. instead of red. That's exactly yeah, how they yeah. look. And I love that when they decide to test it out, T'Pol just goes with the most T'Pol thing ever, which is just ordering tap water. Yeah. <laughs> Basically just wants water to, to test with. Uh, Trip goes for, a, I think it was a pan-fried catfish. Yeah, he's referenced that he likes that in the past. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And this is, this is where Archer suddenly realizes he's in a bit of a privacy nightmare right now because the station has scanned the database, got the genome for the catfish, it's also managed to get the recipe from their database, and it's also provided forks. Yeah, very human-like forks have just appeared as part of the the replicator. Yeah, to Paul rightly sort of guesses that um, you know that it scanned our database, so it probably knows how to make all of our food now. And then March is like, well, it would have been nice to have been asked. But it's also like a great it's a great scene as well because they hadn't seen what is basically a, a replicator. Um, that mm. you know, which are appliances by like next generation era are just as common as a microwave. There's nothing special yeah. about them at all. They're not treated in any sort of special way. They're just a commodity. But they're blown away by this thing, and like, um, like there's a huge, te- almost like a tense moment when Tucker sort of picks up the pan fried catfish, which I've never had in my life. It sounds, <laughs> all, it sounds <laughs> frigging awful. But anyway. <laughs> Things, the thing is, like, it's like a, a southern states thing, I think, probably, and he's from there. It's from his accent, obviously, you can hear it. I, I almost uh, feel like I have to give it a try now, just to, you know, to get that experience. Yeah, um, it looked in, in, interesting, but he picks it up, and they'll kind of watch him as he takes a bite. Like, thinking, oh, God, he's going to die, and then he sort of <laughs> think, thinks about it, and then Archer's like, and? <laughs> and, and like, like, Tucker's like, not bad. <laughs> and like a really like genuinely impressed, but also it isn't brilliant way. <laughs> I, I think that he's probably had it like home cooked and things like this and from proper restaurants from back home. And this is something that's just coming from a recipe in a database. So Yeah, I guess the, the chef probably yeah. makes it, but I can't imagine they'd have a lot of fish on board. They'd obviously run out no. of that. <laughs> so yeah, maybe he's just got a stash of it or something, but you can't have it for that long in the fridge. Yeah. Well, they might they'll have better freezers then, I guess, in 150 yeah. years. Yeah. And Chef will have his own flair to 
the recipe as well, you know, which you don't get. So it's almost kind of like a very computerized, this is the exact quantities and this is the recipe you're getting. So it kind of works that he's just kind of like, it's not bad. But, you know, so didn't Archer um, like say like he um, handpicked the chef who was one that he knows personally? It's not yes. some kind of Starfleet dude or anything. Um, yeah. We don't and see it's him not until Riker. kind of in the last episode. Yeah, it's yeah. not Riker. Um, so <laughs> we're not going to go there, right? Because no, 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 no. But we we can go to sick bay because that's where we've got Reed getting healed by this amazing medical device, which is just. A reuse of the exocomp, but they've yeah. just stood it on its back. It's like a giant dermal regenerator thing. Yeah, isn't but it? it's from yeah. the exocomps from uh, from the next generation, which was this little robotic kind of tool that could fly around and things that gains sentience. When I see a, a, an exocomp, I just think of peanut hamper now. So <laughs> peanut hamper from um, peanut hamper from um, Star Star Trek Lower Decks. Oh, right, yes. The exocomp um, that's in that. Sorry, I probably might have ruined it for someone that's uh, watching that, the cartoon as we speak. There's an exocomp in that, and it, it, uh, it's, it's named itself Peanut Hamper. But, <laughs> yeah. So I was looking it's at great. it, and I was like, that's Peanut ham- Hamper. And obviously they're from, like you say, what it's from the next generation, isn't it, that actual yeah. like, model? Yeah. And I, I, what gets me is that you've got the time from that episode in the next generation to Enterprise, and they still have that prop somewhere, which is it's great. like it's like those two those two cylinders from oh Wrath the of red Ka- things with the, the lights light. in them. They've used the hell out of that. I see that every time I see that. I'm like, oh, it's those bloody things from Wrath of Khan. It was even in sliders. Like it's made yeah, its way into so many sci-fi shows and movies. It's most ridiculous. overused prop of all yes. time. Is that stupid little tube? It doesn't even look futuristic. I remember I watched like Wrath of Khan. I was like the first time probably as a kid. I was like, what's that stupid light thing over there? It's just like, yeah. <laughs> it looked great in context in Star Trek. And then it just, yeah, it, it kind of got everywhere. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and we kind of get to this point in the episode where Archer's obviously nervous about things. He's, he's concerned about the cost being really inexpensive for what they're getting. And he's really suspicious that the owners are seem to be really anonymous. You don't yeah, there's know. no one there. It's just this Roxanne Biggs Dawson yeah. computer. Yeah. yeah, so you've got him with that concern. On the other hand, you've got Trip, who's trying to figure out where the computer is because the computer on the NX-01 we find is three decks high. And he's like, "Yeah, if there's only one place that we can't access, that's a tiny room, so it must be there. But how can you have something that's got this kind of processing power in a room like that? I want that. While this is going on, you do get really cool shots of you see the station repairing the hull and like replicating mm. the bits of the hull while not often in the background of the scene, which is really cool. Mm. And and he he really manages to tempt Reed, you know, who like he's trying to coerce him. And, you know, he's like, Where's yeah. your spirit of adventure? He's like, Well, I left it in the Romulan minefield. <laughs> but eventually <laughs> eventually gets sort of yeah. bought into it. Um and and then it cuts to Mayweather, and I don't know if you kind of picked up on this, but they've got the music, which is very general. Like, it's, it's the, the sort of general um, enterprise, like slightly high energy, slightly, you know, like there's a bit of excitement there, sort of in the, in the musical score. And yeah. Mayweather gets beeped from Archer, and there's this really odd noise that kind of underlies the music. It's like this odd single pulse sound. 
you know, which kind of gives you this kind of unnerved, unsettled kind of feeling. But because yeah. we find out it's not, it's not really Archer that's buzzing yeah, yeah. Him and telling him to go down to this uh, completely off limits place. It just adds an extra layer of creepiness and there's just something not right, basically. Yeah. Something's off. Yeah. Without being too blatant. And that must be a Roxanne thing. I think Roxanne would have, as the director, would have kind of got them to put that in. But it's just yeah, this yeah. nice subtleness that she, she's adding to it. And then I love that you just then cut to uh, to Trip and Reed. This is where you find out that Reed's suddenly on board with everything because they're now trying to break into this computer room. And then they yeah, just they're, get they're, they're already caught. there, basically. They beam back to the bridge, and T'Pol gives the best expression she gives in the entire series. In all four it's just years that great Vulcan, Vulcan-like fate. Like, it's basically like the Spock-lifted eyebrow. Yeah, it is the <laughs> most disapproving look that she gives. Yeah. And it's the perfect precursor to Archer giving them an absolute bollocking for it. Yeah, he's hardcore as well. Yeah, like he's he really probably hardcore. lays into them and yeah. you know says how he kicked them back to Ensign and stuff. Uh, but then asks if they found anything interesting. <laughs> he's kind of like, but whilst you were there... Again, a great example <laughs> of his command style. We've touched upon yeah. it already, but you can really, like, you know, he could be scary when he really wants to tell someone off um, and you really, <laughs> like, feel his authority. But then, you know, because of the relationship he has with his crew, you know, he said, like, look, I've got to tell you off and I'm going to really tell you off, but, you know, can you tell me if you saw it? <laughs> anything in there? Because things are... He's, he just can't shake the... The, uh, the weirdness of the situation. He doesn't, mm. he doesn't really lighten up at any point, does he, Captain Archer? He's got this constant feeling that something's not right about this space station. Yeah, and, and this is when we find that Mayweather's dead. You know, they find his yes. dead body uh, after he's been messing with an EPS grid in Launch Bay 1, which is supposed to be off limits because that's one of the places that's getting repaired. Yeah, um, it's got a big hole in the wall, which I was like, I was a bit confused. I was like, did, is that, is like the space station added that while it's repairing it? Or was that always there from the damage from the minefield? That confused me a little bit. And Mayweather just look, it approaches it. It yeah. may have been able to establish force fields as well for those kind of sections. Um, yeah, so I guess it maybe. turned it off or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this is brilliant acting from Bacula when he goes there because he's seeking answers and you can see there's the frustration. Yeah. <laughs> there's the frustration. <laughs> there's the concern. There's the desperation. There's just, you, there's so many emotions going through him and you know, he, all he can do is just kind of ask what happened. Is there any logs that could explain what happened? And all the computer keeps saying, and this is a, a, a phrase that keeps coming up was your inquiry is not recognized. Exactly, yeah. Your inquiry is not recognized. And to the point that he starts hitting the computer, starts punching it, and it starts yeah, going yeah. on about how they'll be charged for any vandalism. Yeah, exactly. Um, he's not getting anywhere with this computer, and it's just being so, like, you know, potentially p deceptive on purpose now, but not, but almost like in a passive-aggressive way. It's not, you know, it just keeps yeah. repeating the same thing. Um well, he He's basically, like, when he's punching the computer, it's because he's wanting to find out which species built it so he knows if he can speak to somebody who can actually look at these logs. He's basically saying, can I speak to your manager? Yeah, he's basically being a Karen uh, um, at this point. Yeah. But with good reason, you know, one of his yes. crewmates have died in very weird circumstances, you know. Um, yeah. And they can't find anything that would suggest 
what would have made um, Mayweather do. You know, they, they suspect he tried to repair something, and that's what killed him from a discharge from the panel he was um, he was working on. Um, yeah, but but, but yeah. Finds from the autopsy. Um, this know, is that, this is a great Momo moment as well. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, actually, just before the great moment is also one of the most disturbing moments for me personally. Maybe for you. I don't know. But Flox points out that Mayweather is 26 years old. Yeah, and I'm kind yeah. of watching this the other night and be like, how, how am I a decade older than this guy? You know? it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I never really thought about the ages of the characters. Obviously, growing up, no. they're all just adults to us. But like Captain Kirk in the original series is about 35, maybe, uh, I think. He's in his mid-30s, which is young mm. for a captain. It's like, I think, I don't know. No one explicitly says it in the original series that, oh, he's very young for a captain. Not that he comes across like that. He comes across as perfectly experienced and everything. And you know, you can see why he's a Captain Kirk is mm. a captain. Uh, but now I kind of think of it, God, I'm actually older than Captain Kirk. And he's a captain. Yeah. Well, you know, and, I'm and not a captain. <laughs> I, I look back at these characters and I remember being a child and seeing all these characters being older than me. And even when yeah. I get older than the characters that I'm watching, I don't suddenly feel like I'm old and I'm looking at young people. I still feel the age difference. This is the, the, these guys are our parents growing up. Um, yeah. I, I read like the other day that Janeway, I think she's 39 in Caretaker, which again was interesting to me because I never really, they were just sort of a nebulous, age of their grown-ups you know when i, when yeah. I was like or older than, than me i didn't have a sense of like um you know like Chekhov is supposed to be 22 or something and i was like god that is really when i think about 22 year olds now they're like babies to me <laughs> which is kind of a funny thing to say but you, you know what i mean so yeah, yeah. it's I, I just feel like point of the age of these pe people yeah I'm, I'm i'm too old to join starfleet now that's the 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 depressing thing <laughs> yeah, you'd be, you should be heading to being a captain. You'd be a, like some kind of commander by now, at least. Yeah, I'll have to get enlisted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Get, yeah. Like O'Brien. Yeah. You have to do that. Um, <laughs> but but this is where Flox is. He's kind of looking at the screen in just the, the most Flox way and confused, going, they're, they're all dead. All of them. And just walks yeah. off. And I love that you don't get the answer straight away. You know enough to know, okay, something is, he's found something. Yeah. And we find out that there was this Vigilion fever and the entire crew is inoculated and it's the microbes that's part of that inoculation that can survive for several weeks and they should still be alive. But these single-cell organisms are all now dead. And, Which is a um, great way of wrapping that, that, that up, that, that plot line up, because... Yeah. No, it had been a gadget that was built that worked it out. Someone didn't just figure it out. There wasn't a big evil guy that turned up that made it obvious that you know it wasn't him. It was a really subtle but perfectly plausible way that Doctor Flox would have found that out because the yeah. um, this space station can't replicate a living thing, whether it's a single celled organism or a, like an entire human. It's really good. Yeah, and what makes it so good is that without that little detail, even with all the suspicion there it could have passed them by and they could have ended up leaving without knowing what had happened to yeah. Mayweather. Like, it's it's legit. That's the only thing that gave them enough answers. And without that, they would have been completely oblivious. Yeah, it, it works on a couple of different levels there, really, doesn't it? It's that it could have so easily have um, not happened. And then they would have left that space station, you know, without thinking he was dead. And then they go, th and, and this is where Archer just does this brilliant scene where he's just, he's formulated a plan and he's starting to 
give orders to every single person like this is what you're going to do this is what you're going to do it's almost kind of like a you know like a bank heist and he's kind of preparing yes. what everybody's going to be sorting out and then trip comes in and he starts complaining about the quality of the workmanship you know and going, we're not paying until we start this thing out and, and start it yeah yeah i mean you, you see him bring in the warp plasma that they agreed to pay in these big containers that's it yeah but there's nothing, you know, odd about them. They just look like two barrels of, you know, warp, warp plasma. And he sort of parks them up next to the computer. And yeah, this is when he starts being, I'm going to, I want to speak to a manager. At, yeah. um, <laughs> Roxanne Dawson. Yeah. And then Reed is in the, um, like in the, sort of the tubes, a little walkways. They're kind of like Jeffrey's tubes, but on the station. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's in there whilst Archer and Topol are kind of behind him. And they just let him go first. So he's just going to get beamed off again. But they're scanning what's going on. They can then figure yes. out to shoot the bulkhead and then start doing that, at which point Trip bails. He's got like, you've got other problems going on here. You know, so I'm just going to leave. Yeah, you can hear a sign. The sirens are going off. The, obviously, the, mm. the space station is alerted to the fact that Archer and Topol are doing something that it doesn't want to happen. Yeah. yeah so he, he, he makes a run for it. And, and they and they crawl through this space, and then they come through this hatch. And I don't know about you, but this, to me, feels so much like a lot of those spaces that you got in Star Trek Voyager Elite Force. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that kind of sort of damp and dank and creepy and... Like, yeah, and yeah. complete contrast to the very clean interiors that we've already seen. Like something from a horror film. Yeah, yeah. It's all very grim and dirty and just... There's a similar scene, a a similar scene in like um, Caretaker where you see um, the entire crew sort of in this um, medical facility where they're being probed in the chest. A lot of probing goes on in Star Trek. They're being probed. um, And, but it's nothing like that. Everything is very bright and sterile. It's not, the situation is, is where the horror is in that, the the actual air isn't, but this is a a, a skanky sewer-like part of of, of the ship that's the, the opposite of um, you know the rest of the ship, which is very clean and nice and perfect. Um, it's like something from a horror film. There's just these bodies, basically, are hung up, you know, um, with tubes attached to them. Um, you don't know what the hell it's doing to them, but yeah. And there's cling. I think there's Klingons there. There's some aliens from prior episodes of Enterprise that you might recognise. I didn't yeah, pause I- it to try and find every species, but yeah. Yeah, I, I even noticed that they had the Allura there, which I've not noticed until I was... Because I, I started to look in a little bit more deeper. I didn't really get to see many of them. But I was keeping more of an eye out. And the Allura there, they are the aliens from uh, Star Trek Insurrection. That the oh, yeah, sonar, he mentions it, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, the, the Sonar have kind of um, uh, conquered them. And, and yeah. so they're kind of almost like the slave race that do all the face stretching for them. They're part of Rafo, Rafo's uh, crew, That's aren't it. they? There's one or two of them on there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and and this entire... Oh, so it was one of them. One of them was in that scene. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. there's one of them just kind of laying on the, you know, on the table with his head kind of drooping over backwards. And so the very kind of elongated bit that comes off the top of the head yeah, was very yeah. noticeable on it. I think one, one, one race that I did notice that was a one slightly more obscure one, I could be wrong though, I think the second episode of Enterprise, there's a, a fight or flight, I think it's the second episode. Um, well, mm. that's the third episode. There's, there's some aliens in that. I can't remember what they're called, but I'm pretty sure one of them is in this scene as well. 
Oh, which okay. is kind of, I think it's the aliens that end up helping the Enterprise at the end when Hoshi works out how to talk to them. Because that's the whole thing of the episode is her trying to figure out how to do that. Um, yeah. And I think that, and it kind of makes you think, God, they were really advanced, those guys, but they also got done by this space station. Mm. <laughs> so which which adds, you know, kind of has them in this setup that really is basically the Matrix. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, literally, yeah. Just all these people plugged in. That are being harvested, yeah. really. But we do get to a weird point. And that's when they rescue Mayweather. Because they, yes. they unplug him, they phaser their way out. They're not bothered about if unplugging him would kill him. Archer just yeah. walks straight up. Yep, yeah, there we go, yank out. There's even blood or something coming out of the tubes. That's he it. yanks them out and they just carry him. And he's like, yeah, you'll be fine, mate. <laughs> it's just like, you might want to have scanned him first. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they deliver their payment, which is basically those bowels going kaboom. Uh, the secondary explosions all over the station. And fortunately, uh, th this bit I kind of like, because the engines do come online, which, you know, is almost kind of like, oh, that's convenient, but they're still clamped. They still have to torpedo the way out. And I do appreciate that they still have to, to shoot the way out. It's not something like, oh, the engines come online and now we can escape. Yeah, but, it wasn't like a tractor beam. It was literally like they held them there. It was literal clamps on the hull yeah. that kept them where they were. And one, one refused to... One didn't come away from them when the explosions were happening. And that was very yeah. clever as well, having those explosions, explosives in those barrels uh, that they were that, that was, were supposed to be the payment. That was a cool little bit as well. Yeah, and, and we see the whole station destroyed. Like, the whole thing explodes and it kind of cross-dissolves in. And, you know, and the people are kind of making jokes, going, you know, you look pretty good for a dead guy and all of this stuff. To um, weather, yeah, when they finally yeah, wake then, him up. And this is the bit where I kind of have concerns about things because we find out from flocks that the damage to the other aliens was irreversible they've been there for too long yeah some of them been yeah. there for years isn't it yeah yeah and so it's a damn good job that that's the case they kind of get the like okay it's reassuring that yes we just unplugged one person we didn't bother rescuing anybody else we blew them all up and it's fortunate that in hindsight we have discovered they they wouldn't have survived anyway. Yes, but there was no attempt at all. No. Yeah, I mean, again, it was that whole bit was a bit rushed. I mean, you touched upon you know, cramming things into just forty five minutes of an episode mm. is, is an issue, isn't it? But so they rush through that rescue fairly quick. Um, yeah, they don't really yeah. scan anyone else. They don't really look like they're even bothering with rescuing anybody else. Maybe they're too creeped out by the situation. You could argue yeah. that this is still very early Starfleet years. So they're not super, like, you know, philanthropic like they would be in Next Generation. Maybe they know that it'll be too much work, unfortunately, you know. Yeah, yeah. it is a weird one. And we know that it can beam them out, so they, they obviously are kind of like, you know, it's it's get in and get out as quickly as possible. And they can't beam anybody, really, at, that, at this point. They're very reluctant to use the transporter that they have, so that's yeah. not on the cards anyway, which it would be in later series. I, I, I would be surprised if the station would even allow anybody to beam out of there. You know, I'm sure that they would have had some scattering field or something. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I just, I feel like Archer should have had a little bit more, can we do anything for these people in that moment? But I think you're right, the yeah, time you, of the you, episode was limited. You could you could probably, yeah, I mean, maybe you could have shoved in a line where Topol does a quick scan of them and just says their brain activity is very low, it's unlikely we could revive them, um, but Travis appears to be okay. And then yeah. you'd be like, they kind of would nip it in the bud. Uh, so they kind of had to do, and they ended up, I guess, doing that same thing, but doing it afterwards. 
Mm. Um, so yeah, that is a bit of an oversight, perhaps. It could have been handled a little bit better. And then, and then we have the, the final scene, which is one of the best ways that they could have ended this. Yeah. And that's that the station repairs itself. And Trip had already sort of said, you know, imagine if we had starships that could repair themselves. The station yes. is doing exactly that. So it's still going to continue doing its thing. Which is amazing, and um, because it's in pieces, there's obviously you know mm. bits of it. It didn't completely like go into like atomized; that it just blows up into chunks. But somehow, some of the arms that sort of you know do the welding and stuff are still able to function, and it starts welding itself together. And yeah. he thinks, God, this station's going to repair itself, and it'll be back to the way it was. That's I, I would imagine that the central core where the matrix kind of thing is held, with that being very different material, I'm wondering if that's just really reinforced. And then well shielded, they probably just yeah. use replicators for the arms and it's like just basic stuff just to get it going and then it'll just repair itself. But the thing that I think makes the episode work so well is we never find out who the owners of the station are or why it was built that way. No, it never gets touched upon again. Um, no. Maybe, and I you know, love, another... Yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's so many times when I want to know more, I want to know the answers to these questions. But this is one of those times when the episode is so much better for not doing. Yes. They left us with those questions in the best way possible. They gave us an, a, a, a terrifying end to the episode, really. Obviously, they got their crew member back. But, um, you know, this is going to probably happen all over again to God knows how many other crews when it because it probably is going to fully repair itself. Like you say, yeah. it probably it might not have been the first time the station has been blown up when someone's managed to get away. Um, yeah. So it's probably prepared for it, like you say, with extra shielding and everything. But yeah, yeah. Uh, but we never hear about it again. Um, but that's fine. But at the same time, God, yeah, I'd love to know what happened. Yeah, it's a really cool way to end it. It's it's one of those few things which would be interesting if they brought it up in one of the newer shows that it was somehow still around. Yeah, that may be a good thing to revisit, maybe. But again, it depends on how they do it, and too much information may spoil it. Yeah, you would think that obviously the Enterprise has this, like, obviously Archer would have made a captain's log, um, mm. and he would have like given that to Starfleet at some point. So perhaps at some point they would have sent, you know, um, some kind of a team out perhaps to that part of the, of, of, um, the Alpha co um, co Quadrant. We don't really know what part of space this is. It's obviously not too far from that Romulan minefield, um, so they might say sort of, you know, because um, at warp five, you could probably get to that space station within a matter of hours from that minefield. Um, so that's something that's a point of concern anyway, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I could imagine by next generation technology, maybe even like original series like a Constitution class starship probably wouldn't have any, any, anything to worry about from that space station. I think it would probably defend itself and it could probably scan it and figure out everything that's going on with it to a far higher degree than like um, the NX-01 could. Um, so yeah, maybe it wouldn't really have lasted into that era. Yeah, and, and there's two things that you that kind of explain why they would never would have gone back. One, they thought the whole thing was destroyed and that there was nothing left. Yeah, they didn't. They they left. And two, you've then got the Zindi threat, and then later on, you've got uh, what would have come up in season five was the Romulan War. Yes which is a real shame we didn't get that. Yeah, so the, there's so many things that kind of went away from it. But one of the traps that this fell into, which I think if they'd avoided, would have made it a better episode, in, in my opinion, and I'd, I'd love to know what you think of this. Having Mayweather die 
I think was a bit of a, a problem because it's one of those things where we know that if a main character dies, they're probably not dead and they're coming back. And exactly, yeah. I think it was partly to try and give a little bit more to that character because you find out about the letter he was writing to his sister. You find out that Archer, uh, just like in the previous episode where he'd had a meal with Reed, that he was wanting to have a, a meal with Mayweather as well, but he had to cancel just a week earlier. Yeah, that, which would have been just like a, a day or two around when Reed was having his meal. It would have been around then. Yeah, I mean that that whole thing of where they have meals in a, a, a the captain has his own like dinner room, which mm. is something you don't really get in the other series, and it actually gets used a lot uh, in terms of for like for scenes where he's either got alien guests on board or he's just chatting to T'Pol and Tucker. But it's quite an interesting. Is 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 a good little. Um, setup that they use on several occasions on Enterprise, more than set several. But they do try yeah. to add some weight to Mayweather's death, like you say, by saying he was writing a letter to his sister and things like that. But I yeah. agree with you. I think if it was like, I would say maybe Tucker. Um, I, I, Tucker don't, I don't even I, think that. I, I think that it shouldn't have been one of the main cast. I think it should have just been somebody that we had never seen before. Or maybe just, you know, a crewman that had just popped up briefly in the previous episode, Minefield, maybe. But just having some random crew member so that, one, you think they're dead. And so there's less chance of you thinking that there's something going on. So it's more of a surprise that they're alive. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, by having it as some random crew member, it also shows that Archer cares about every single person on the crew. Because there's so many times and so many shows where the captain will look after the main cast. And sometimes if a crewman goes, it's less of a big deal. And I think that this is something that Voyager had a problem with. I think the only good example of a, a random Voyager crewman was the episode, um, is, it, is it Latent Image? Where um, mm. the Doctor has like his, his program erased, or part of his program erased, because um, he had to let a crewman die. And it basically made the Doctor go nuts because um, he had to sort of choose uh, Harry Kim again with talking too much about a really good Voyager ep episode. But they made a really good job of building up this random crew member who died um, throughout the episode. It's one of the best yeah. Voyager um, episodes, actually. Never gets, that doesn't really get talked about. We're going to do, we're going to do that episode. That, that is for sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that is probably one good example I can think of, of a random crew member. And maybe in the original series you had, um, the one where um, there's that really young ensign who, um, who, oh god, what what was it? It was where um, Captain Kirk, when he was a lieutenant on another ship, his captain was killed by like an alien cloud thing. Is it obsession mm. or something? It's called, and he, he builds. A, it, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. He develops a relationship with another ensign who um, had a similar experience, and that's again a random character that they build up. Um, uh, really well, and actually, Kirk actually benefits from that relationship with this young ensign. It was just a random character. It, it doesn't happen very often. And the episode Lower Decks as well, TNG, not not the cartoon, uh, but the, the the actual episode called Lower Decks is really good. Uh, the Bajoran girl, um, can't remember who that was. Not Row. There's in that 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 Lower Decks episode, and then she dies. Oh, Sito uh, Jaxa. Yes, that's it. Yeah. And she dies later on in uh, season seven, yeah. Yeah. She's... Yeah, yeah. Um, she comes back and then basically dies, I think, kind of. Um, yeah, there's very few. Well, she's presumed dead. Yes. Um, but yeah, uh, anybody listening, watch Latent Images, a freaking good Voyager episode about a background character. 
basically. So that wraps up our third episode of Long Range Sensors. Thank you so much for, for hanging out with us uh, with this. If you have any questions that you would like for us to answer on the show, you can reach us via Twitter at Star Trek LRS. You can message us via our website at longrangesensors.com, or you can even email us any questions you have at longrangesensors at iCloud.com. You can also discuss this episode with us over on our exclusive private Discord channel by joining the crew of the USS Atlantic at patreon.com slash longrangesensors. Choose from our science, operations, and command division tiers to give you exclusive benefits, including exclusive extended editions of the show once we hit our next goal of 15 patrons. For a limited time, if you want to join Cosmic, Liwa's, Sonu, Minipax, and Elkhorn on our founding members tier, then you'll get lifetime access and an exclusive role on our Discord channel, a permanent website credit, and a shout-out on the first few episodes of the show. And of course, if you want to help, where you are able to contribute financially, that's absolutely fine too. If you enjoy listening to the show, then please tell a friend, share it on social media, and transmit it to a loved one via subspace. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to share our content and goes a long way to help our show reach even more people. My name is Alistair, and you can find everything I'm up to at alistairmcfly.com. You can follow me at both Alistair McFly and iMcFly on Twitter, and if Twitch streams are your thing, then you can also check out my channel where I stream Minecraft, Among Us, and some classic Star Trek and Star Wars games too over at twitch.tv slash McFly. Trev, where can people find you? Uh, you can follow me at Henry Jones Jr. on Twitter. Um, and um, should you wish, you can also check out my other podcast, which is about uh, modern retro gaming. Uh, my co-host, Stu, um, we both do this over at consoleshock.net. Um, yeah, so feel free to check that out if you're into games as well. You've been listening to Long Range Sensors, where your inquiry is always recognised. 